Hello and welcome to Worldly on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, joined as always by Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Hi. This week, President Trump offered to have a meeting with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, a surprise move considering all the nasty things he's been saying about Iran over the course of his presidency. Uh, the Iranian foreign ministry declined pretty forcefully. They called it a humiliation, given you know the recent history of the U.S. withdrawing from the nuclear deal that it had painstakingly negotiated with Iran. But Trump seems to think a meeting still might happen. I hope it works out well with Iran. They're having a lot of difficulty right now. I hope it works out well. And I have a feeling they'll be talking to us pretty soon. So when he says Iran is having a lot of difficulty, he's mostly referring to economic problems. Uh, these problems are really important to understanding what's happening right now, this whole negotiation back and forth and diplomatic to and fro. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the economy and what it means for these broader geopolitical issues. So... We need to start even before the nuclear deal. Alex, take us back in time. Sure. So one thing that's important to know is that the U.S. and Iran have been in a kind of economic spat since 1979 after the hostage crisis. The Carter administration sanctioned Iran. We've been doing it kind of ever since. The Obama administration used the sanctions tool, right, imposing financial costs on Iran as a way to get them to the negotiating table to strike a nuclear deal. The thought was, if Iran's economy starts struggling even more, then the government has no other choice but to make some sort of nuclear agreement. So they reached the nuclear agreement. This happened in 2015. Yay. Basically, the trade-off was the sanctions are lifted by the U.S. and a bunch of other countries, and Iran basically freezes its nuclear program. And Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, really staked his political future and everything he had, essentially, on this deal. Like, he's a moderate, and his promise was like, look, I know you guys don't want to talk to the Americans. I know you don't trust the Americans, but trust me, like, we're going to make this deal. It's going to be good. It's going to be okay. Like, it's going to be beneficial to our economy. This is going to, like, bring us back on the world stage, reopen our economy. It's going to be okay. But it's it's worth pausing and focusing here because this is a really, really vital part of the story. Right. right? If you look at the details and the terms of the Iranian nuclear deal, all that Iran got out of it, the thing that made them willing to accept pretty harsh limits on their nuclear program was relief from American sanctions. That was the entire carrot for Iran on the deal, why they did it in the first place. So when Rouhani was trying to convince Iranians that they should accept the terms of this deal, uh, that was it. It was the economic stuff, right? And so that's why, that's what what you're saying, Jen, when right. you're saying, you know, he staked his reputation on this. He made a big deal, aggressive foreign policy move, and all it was supposed to deliver were economic benefits. And then what happened? Right. And then uh, (laughs) (laughs) President Trump got elected. So on the campaign trail, you know, he's railed against the deal, called it one of the worst deals in the history of the entire world. You know, he kind of waffled since being in office and we kind of extended it and extended it, extended it. And then officially in May, he announces we are pulling the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal. So that doesn't mean the deal collapses, right? Like, it's still technically there. Iran's still in compliance, and the Europeans are desperately trying to kind of keep it together and hold it together. But by pulling the U.S. out, Trump essentially said, okay, and we are going to now reimpose sanctions, and maybe even more sanctions on top of the ones that we didn't even have before. And so, you know, early next week is actually when this first big batch of new sanctions is going to officially kick in, and that is causing some major panic in Iran. Right. So the problem with U.S. sanctions is they make it very difficult for 
Iran to spend money internationally are significantly harder. They don't just affect the United States trade with Iran. There are also secondary sanctions affecting banks that do business with Iran. So this creates like a lot of uncertainty around international investment in Iran and how one ought to operate with it. And what that means is that the Iranian currency has lost a tremendous amount of value since the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal. Right. Just to be specific, so the sanctions that are going to affect, because I know, you know, we talk about sanctions a lot, but like, what does that mean? Like, I'm glad you mentioned, like, this affects all sorts of things. Trade in gold and precious metals, dealings with metal, coal, industrial-related software, food, financial transactions. Like, we're talking really basic things, like food, money, coal. These are the core parts of the economy, right? Like, this is going to cause serious, serious damage. Hence why the Iranian currency is entering freefall. People aren't really sure what the business climate is going to be like after these sanctions are reimposed. They imagine it will be bad. And so there's a lot less international investment flowing into Iran, and the currency is just generally capable of purchasing less stuff. This is bad for ordinary Iranians who need to buy things, and when they get their money's worth less, it's much harder for them to buy things. Yeah, so the Chicago Tribune talked to this Iranian man, Rasul Shadi, in Tehran, in the capital, talking to him about how Iranians, because the currency has dropped by more than half just since April— They've seen their savings dwindle, and shopkeepers are increasingly actually refusing to sell goods because they're not sure what the true value even is, and they're worried that things are only going to get worse. So this man, Russell Shetty, told the reporter, quote, if the rate keeps going up like this, nobody knows what's going to happen. I think people should stop buying for a while. If they don't buy something, its price will definitely decrease. That's how in complete kind of chaos the economy is right now, and it's causing some political problems. Yeah, and I, I mean, I— I don't want to minimize the effect that the sanctions the U.S. is going to reimpose is having on the economy, but I I want to broaden this out because a lot of this has to do with the way the Iranian government has managed the economy, right? I mean, Iranian household income from 2007 until now has effectively dropped by about $2,000. Part of that is the sanctions. Part of that is just the Iranian government has completely mismanaged its economy. This is a longer-term issue. Wait, when you say economic mismanagement, what do you mean? I'm saying that, like, so a lot of the country's biggest industries are manufacturing pistachio exports like the, the oil go- oil right yeah sure oil I, i'm just a big pistachio fan uh, <laughs> okay they're really delicious they are delicious yeah, yeah. Right. so those state-run entities again part of the sanctions part of it is just like they haven't been focusing too much on them because of their own political turmoil the people in charge of those organizations just haven't really run that economy that well also the, those- the irgc so right. the, the uh, islamic revolutionary guard corps which is like separate from the army Their job is basically to protect the Islamic revolution. They have their fingers in basically every part of the economy. I mean, huge amounts of the economy is controlled by these people. So even if Rouhani, like, wants to make changes, there are a lot of, like, powerful stakeholders who like— enriching themselves and like the way things happen. Right. So that's so, a good point. Right. So it's like it's, a, it's been a kleptocracy for a long time. Iran, especially as of late, has been, been spending a lot more on the military and, and moving throughout the region. So its focus on economic issues, the thing that Rouhani kind of ran on, that that promise has not been fulfilled. And of again, to be clear, we are not helping with the sanctions uh, and reimposing them, but I don't want to let Iran off the hook here. Part of this is their fault too. No, 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 of course. I just mean the immediate spike in- right. In inflation, that's U.S. Sure. That's that's but, U.S. But the, but the real, for example, the, the Iran's currency has yeah. dropped by two thirds since 2012, and it was dropping even before right, those. Right. Kinds. So, like, it, it's, I'm just saying, it's a longer term issue. That yes, the spike we are not helping right now. Okay, I got it. So what, what you're 
saying, in essence, is that Iran has had these long-running problems, but now they're really being made much, much worse in the short term by the U.S., and that's really making them a top-level political issue in Iran. Correct. So, yeah. So, on that point, like, there are massive protests that have been going on for months and months. People in cities large and small all across Iran. I mean, we're talking in the capital, Tehran, all the way to, like, rural villages, and they're nearly all economic in nature. They're all about the economy, and they're mad and, you know, are even kind of saying things like, you know, bring down the regime. Actual political turmoil. And the Iranian government is noticing President Rouhani was summoned by mainly more hardline, like more It's not really accurate to say right wing or left wing in Iran. It's a different kind of political spectrum. But for an American audience, it's just kind of like a more hardcore kind of conservative, you would say in our kind of context, right wing, right? But like the more hardline conservatives, they have summoned Rouhani to come to parliament. He has a month to come. And basically, they're like, come answer for what you're doing to the economy. And they're like, you need to, you know, change up your cabinet. So just last week, he replaced the country's central bank governor. Like, he's actually aware that shit is not going well and he needs to do something. And now they're like, you have to come and stand in front of us and tell us what the fuck is going on and why are you not fixing the economy? And that's bad for him, right? Yeah, and it's not—it's never good whether you're in Iran or any other country when your middle class is revolting. I mean, they're the ones that were hardest hit, not the elite, not the poor. The middle class was the one that saw their effectively household budgets drop by about 20% under Rouhani. So it's There's a reason this is happening, right? Now, the question that is unclear right now and Iran analysts are trying to figure out right now is who actually gets the blame for the problems going on right here? Because there are basically two ways that you can think about these protests. One is that people are really angry at Rouhani because the nuclear deal has not paid off for Iran. And so you can say this is going to empower his conservative critics and it's going to derail the reformist movement in Iran. And that's possible. That's certainly what, as Jen was just talking about, as the conservatives are trying to spin this as and and to co-opt the middle class anger. The other way to look at it is that this is going to reflect what Alex was talking about earlier, the deeper problems in Iran and people's long-standing, long-running objections to the way that the Islamic Republic has run the economy. And you can hear that a little bit in the protests. Some of the protesters were shouting, Marg bar dictator. It means literally death to the dictator in Farsi. But it's a slogan from the 2009 Green Revolution or protests. Right, the which, pro-democracy uprising. Right. Yeah, right. which were quashed by force by the government. It was a really big deal in Iran. And since the leaders of it have been seriously repressed. So does all of this mean that there'll be more anti-regime sentiment or will there be anti-Rahani sentiment? And the question is, how does this anger get mobilized politically? And that's a question we don't have the answer to. We, right. just, we just don't know. But I think like it's pretty clear the fact that they're summoning Rouhani is that they are trying to make sure that Rouhani is the one oh, yeah. that gets the blame for this. Oh, yeah. But I just want to go back to the point that you made for a minute about how, you know, this is becoming like anti-regime and causing, you know, instability. That's the point. In as much as the Trump administration has thought this through, there are, especially, you know, John Bolton in particular, national security advisor, he has for a long time, and he's not alone in the White House, been a big Iran hawk and has essentially advocated for regime change. And just to be clear, we are not anywhere close to there being like an uprising that is toppling the regime. I just generally don't want to make any predictions about anything because (laughs) all predictions have been wrong recently. Exactly. But part of the idea is like behind heavy sanctions, there are two options, right? One is to push people to the negotiating table, which is kind of what Trump's saying, like maybe they'll come to the table or to just 
crack down so hard in the economy that the people rise up and say, okay, well, you, the regime, it's your fault that we have these sanctions in the first place. So we're going to topple you. We're not happy about this. The entire point of kind of sanctions is to create this kind of instability and create this chaos and either lead to regime instability or push them to the table. And that gets back to what Trump was saying. Like, I hope it works out with Iran. They're having a lot of difficulties. I think they're going to be talking to us really soon. That's what he's saying. And that's where we're going to end this segment today. After the break, we're going to talk about Google maybe coming back to China, but censoring itself. It's an ethically questionable decision that we'll dissect in some detail. If you love Worldly, you'll probably love Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Deep Dish is a podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. It covers a mix of timely foreign policy topics and important stories, including things that are often missing from the daily discourse. Their guests are really impressive. Everybody from Korea analysts talking nuclear threats to White House economists chatting trade wars to Israeli security experts explaining cyber terrorism. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. So my wife really enjoys refreshing up her wardrobe. And one of the places that she likes to go shopping, especially, is to Everlane. And part of the reason she likes going to Everlane is because she likes making sure she gets the right price for the clothes she buys. So at Everlane, you don't buy a t-shirt that costs $50 that you know only costs like $7 to make. And part of the reason that you'll know that is because Everlane is extremely transparent about the process for making their clothes, where it's made from, the kind of materials, how it got to the store where you bought it. Basically, Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are around 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. And it's not like you're getting bad stuff at all. I mean, Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials and without traditional markups. So right now, you can check out Everlane's personalized collection at everlane.com worldly. And plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com worldly. Everlane.com worldly. I know this is a podcast and it's audio, so maybe you don't know this, but I have a lot of tattoos. But suddenly, it seems like everybody has at least one. This week, Vox's Netflix show, Explained, is going deep on the history of tattoos. It actually tries to answer the question, why are so many people suddenly getting tattoos now? But it also shows just how long humans have been marking their bodies to look different from people around them. It explores tattoo traditions around the world and how they're melding together now. So go check it out on Netflix. Search for Explained or just for Vox. Or you can go directly to netflix.com slash explained. Welcome back. For elsewhere this week, we're going to China. We're going to talk about some leaked Google documents obtained by The Intercept, suggesting that the massive, massive tech company is planning to open up a version of its search engine in China. But there's a catch. This search engine would filter out content relating to democracy, human rights. and That, that all sounds... Troubling. Dystopian <laughs> is the word you're looking for, I think. Yeah. So, Jen, you were in China not that long ago, right? Give us some context on how to understand Google's thinking here. So I was in China uh, about a year ago on a reporting trip. And just to kind of get an idea of what it's like to be in China and try to access the Internet, Google doesn't exist there. Gmail, things that are even related to Google platforms. I had to use Bing 
Anyway, Talk about dystopian. Like, exactly. <laughs> Bing is fine. But you can't use Google. You can't use all sorts of things. Like you can't access the New York Times. And you have Baidu. So it's this kind of local domestic internet giant that's basically referred to as the Chinese Google. So it's a really, really restrictive environment. And the Chinese government controls everything that people see. They control everything on social media. So th- this thing apparently is called Project Dragonfly, which is fucking awesome. Uh, but the, the, the main point is this whole service is really supposed to be an app on Android, and effectively you kind of can click it on your phone, and then you're able to search the internet, but like not for things like, as Zach said, the Me Too movement, civil society groups, human rights groups. All of that stuff is kind of out. They're going to be running searches through a special... Chinese kind of like government filter first. And it's not like it's just filtering out, bring down the government or like down with communism. The Chinese government censors all kinds of shit just arbitrarily. They censored Winnie the Pooh because there was this meme going around a while back during the Obama administration comparing President Xi Jinping to Winnie the Pooh. There's crazy stuff like that. But there's also, like you mentioned, the Me Too movement. So that movement has spread to China. And just this past week or so, A bunch of Chinese women have posted these kind of, some anonymous and some not, these really powerful personal letters accusing prominent celebrities, academics, all kinds of people, uh, NGO workers, um, CEOs of, of NGOs, of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And almost immediately, the Chinese government stepped in and started banning, like, the Chinese word for, for me too, hashtags, taking down the letters. So, this is very serious repression here. I, I don't want to overlook how like granular they are and how good they are at this. And Google knows that. So the ethical question here, right, is an American company, one of our greatest companies, arguably, helping its censorship, frankly harming democracy in China? And it looks like yes. Well, I, I want to read a quote from the source who leaked these documents, the Project Dragonfly documents, to The Intercept. Uh, it's very striking. And first of all, all credit to The Intercept for breaking this story. This is yeah, Ryan very Gallagher. impressive. Yeah, good work. Here's how The Intercept summarized their sources thinking. They had moral and ethical concerns about Google's role in the censorship, which is being planned by a handful of top executives and managers at the company with no public scrutiny. Right. So somebody inside Google was like, I'm not okay with this. I'm going to leak it to a reporter, essentially. Right. And I don't know why you would be okay with this, right? So my my way of thinking about this and, and tech giants in general is that they're basically little states. They have tremendous, tremendous amounts of resources. They control the lives of thousands of people who are functionally their constituents, right? They're these large, non-accountable, they aren't quite governments, but they have power uh, that outstrips many, arguably most governments on the planet. Even more money than most governments. Then, well, I don't know about more money than most, but uh, than a lot, than a lot, than a lot of governments. Yeah, and so when they make decisions like this, decisions to enter a market, it's not just a financial decision, which is I'm sure how the Google executives are thinking about this. China's a massive market. It's a foreign policy decision. This is a large entity saying it is okay that we will facilitate and assist in this massive system of censorship, which is propping up a government who, while unfortunately is a major U.S. trading partner and so has to be dealt with on a certain level, uh, is also a a viciously repressive state when it comes to dissent. So, yeah, I just want to actually point out this isn't the first time that Google has actually launched 
its internet search engine in China. Back in 2006, they launched Google.cn. So they did this before. And at the time, they got all this backlash saying the same things we're saying. Like, wait a second, this seems not ethical for you to make a lot of money and participating in the repression of free speech. And they were like, yeah, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep an eye on it. They even said in a statement later about that, you know, we opened this in the belief that the benefits of increased access to information for people in China and a more open internet outweighed our discomfort in agreeing to censor some results. Clearly. Uh, in 2010, they were subjected to a massive cyber attack from China. And so Google was like, okay, fuck you, we're out. So they moved it to a Hong Kong-based platform, but now they're back, hey, right? Why, why? And what the hell? <laughs> yeah, why would Google do this? I'm so— Money? Well, uh, yeah, I don't well, find no, that confusing at well, all. Well, no, no, what I'm—sorry. Uh, Obviously, they need access to a market that's like one out of every seven people on Earth. Yeah, that's that's very clear. No, I get that. I'm confused why they would agree to such stringent things. Like, they it will clearly hurt their reputation. It's clearly hurting them here. I get that there's a whole backlash within Google. You may remember that there was the whole AI debate about whether Google should help the Pentagon with artificial intelligence and maybe kill people with it. Right, and Google employees, again, yeah. revolted. Revol- revolted. Some re- thousand signed a letter in protest. A few, and so Google backed down. Google backed down. I th- Maybe it's still too early because this piece came out yesterday, but right. like, I'm interested to see what the Google backlash is going to be because it would seem to me, like if there isn't that kind of backlash to this, like there was to the AI debate, then I'm questioning sort of what's going on within Google. Maybe it's possible the staff didn't know. I think it's a broader tech giant problem. The leadership of tech giants often has no understanding of the socio-political environment in which they're operating. They understand the economic regulations that govern them. They are very smart about the technology, but they don't know what they're stepping in when it comes to ethical or and political they do, morals. Actually. Yeah. I think clearly, like I just said, like Google has done this before. They testified on Capitol Hill about this because they were challenged the first time. Yeah, and I don't know what's worse, whether Zach's right that like Google is doing this without understanding the societal applications or whether they're doing this and they do know. No, like, no, 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 I mean, no, 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 sorry. You're misrepresenting my position, okay, no. both of you. Though what Jen said was very important. Um, it's not that they don't literally understand what the censorship is, right? Obviously, they don't. It's that there's a deeper level of knowing what right conduct is, of ethical thinking, of thinking about a business's place in the world and what its social responsibilities are. This isn't the domain of regulations, right? I'm sure Facebook and Google are both very clear on how the regulatory environment works and what rules and and hurdles they have to jump through. They're very smart technical people. This isn't technical knowledge, right? It's not empirical knowledge. It's moral knowledge. It's understanding and having a sense of what your place in the world is, what your responsibilities are. Google's slogan used to be don't be evil. Don't be evil. But that's not enough. Also, they took that out, by the way. They took it out of the code of conduct. But don't be evil is not sufficient ethical thinking, right? It's just like... It, it, it's a child's level of moral thinking. And even that much Google was not willing to commit to like the notion that they have a deep and well thought out understanding of what their international role is seems laughable in the face of the way that these tech giants actually behave. And it's it just not everything's an engineering problem. Google hasn't commented publicly specifically on, cause they said like, we won't discuss what projects we are or are not working on because these were class not classified but you know in a business sensitive sense. yeah you know they were they were private corporate documents that were leaked but they have said before and will say again i'm sure 
pretty soon as this comes out that like, you know, we're aware of this. You know, they made that statement like we're aware we're going to be watching, you know, be careful that it doesn't go too far, whatever, whatever. But like, okay, even last time there was plenty of censorship on Google China and they didn't do anything until they were personally attacked. Right. So they're going to come out. They're going to put out some justification saying, well, we still think it's better. You know, more information is better than less. And it's still going to be censored, but at least they'll have access to some. But like, is that is that satisfactory? No, they could clearly make a statement by not going through with this and they're going to go through with it. And on that depressing note, we're going to end our episode for the week. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our other producer, Jillian Weinberger, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. We encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcast listening platform you like, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, we're there. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe. Do all of the things that you can do. Keep listening. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we co-host a podcast called Displaced, all about the refugee crisis. Check out this week's episode with Jeff Mulligan, who talked with us about something he calls collective intelligence, or really how machines and humans can collaborate to solve problems like dealing with epidemics, predicting war and conflict, and collecting data during natural disasters. Displaced is a collaboration between the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work, and Vox Media. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.